Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Achtung, achtung. Uh, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and with James Holland. Um, and James, uh, well, as part of our December week, um, who, who are we talking to today? Well, I'm really, really excited about this one. This is uh, um, a comparatively old friend of mine now, Ian W. Toll, um, who is an American um, historian and has written just an absolutely incredible trilogy on the Pacific War. Uh, Pacific Crucible, The Conquering Tide, and most recently Twilight of the Gods, and they're absolute masterpieces. Um, just brilliantly written, brilliantly, um, brilliantly researched, and with just lots of new and interesting perspectives on the whole Pacific War. So when we first brought up this idea of having a December 41 week, um, Ian was absolutely number one on my target list of getting on it. Um, and I'm really pleased that we can talk to him about Pearl Harbor, that the, the day of infamy on the 7th of December, 1941. So, so Ian, thanks so much for coming on. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I'm pleased to be here. This, this uh, event, after all, is the, for a lot of people, is the, is the moment where, you know, the, the Second World War, the die is finally cast. The result is no longer in, in any doubt. Um, uh, America's in, Britain's bacon is saved, um, uh, both axes, all ends, all elements of the axis are forever doomed. But is is this what the Japanese were always going to do? Is this that are they inexorably caught in this part path that leads them to Pearl Harbor, or is, could could something else have happened? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's a good question. I, I think um, the Japanese were on a path, clearly, as of uh, 1939, 1940, uh, their decision to cast their lot with the Axis to form the Pact of Steel with Germany and Italy um, to invade China. These were uh, major decisions uh, that they had made. They were inextricably bound up in domestic political conflicts uh, that were occurring. Uh, factionalism within in the army, uh, conflict between the army and the navy. I, I think that it was clear that the Japanese were committed uh, to their their program of imperialist um, uh, trying to establish a, a, a uh, essentially establish Japan as the as the leading power of Asia through conquest. Uh, they were committed to that path, and uh, by uh, our policy of essentially cutting off all export, exports of oil in particular uh, to them. On which they were very dependent, weren't they? They were very dependent, Japan, on, on, on U.S. imports. Yeah, it, you know, but in, in the decade prior to the outbreak of war, uh, the uh, Japanese imported about 80% of their oil uh, from the United States. So it was essentially it's being pumped out of the oil fields in um, West Texas and uh uh, piped to the west coast and loaded onto tankers, and that was their their energy supply. And you know, Japan uh, then is now is a, a country that is impoverished in natural resources, and um, and really going back to the Meiji period, 
this this problem of and this is like the 1660s isn't it 1860s rather right exactly that when um when the the uh, japanese first decided they had to essentially engage with the rest of the world and um and quickly modernize their economy and their military in order to avoid um becoming yet another asian colony of of the western powers yeah uh you know this was the central kind of problem in their in their foreign policy is how do we solve our resource problem and they did that with diplomacy uh right up through the 1920s at which point they really decided that they needed to control uh their own uh, sources of raw materials, and that was behind their decision to conquer Manchuria. And uh, and so when FDR uh, essentially decided that we were going to cut off oil exports uh, to force uh, Japan to pull out of China, it, it imposed this situation where they quickly had to make a decision. You know, do we uh, essentially meet these American demands uh, or do we secure our own source of oil? And so at that point, I think it was clear that uh, because of the domestic political situation in Japan, because the army and in particular the control faction within the army had seized control uh, of the of, of the Japanese political scene, uh, it um, they were committed essentially to 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 take any action that would avoid um, uh, you know throwing in the towel. Yeah. Uh, and so, and so, so precisely. So there's not a there's not a diplomatic way of getting their hands on American oil anymore. It's it's right. that 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 door is slammed shut. And after all, if you've got a if you've got a nationalist, militarist, imperialist, expansionist government, their their solution to most problems is is nationalist, militarist, expansionist, imperialist. Is it they go? So they're going to they're going to try and find an imperial solution rather than uh, rather than rather than a diplomatic one anyway, aren't they? So. It's sort of it's uh, it's sort of six of one half dozen the other in this situation, isn't it? Right, right. I mean, you know, counterfactuals are difficult, but yeah, you know, there is this this fascinating question of if the Japanese had um, waited an, another month, right? Um, at that point, uh, the the uh, German armies are are closing the ring around Moscow, and it looked as if Moscow would fall. And, and if they had waited either another two or three weeks, it, it might have become clear to, to them and the world that this that uh, the Soviet Union was not about to fall. Yeah. And and that uh, that the Germans might be engaged on the Eastern Front for years. And if they had if they had known that, um, would they have have held back? Gosh, that's an interesting prospect, isn't it? Part of this a calculus attacking the United States and Great Britain in Asia uh, was that uh, it, it was clear to them, as it was for many other observers, that uh, Hitler was hegemonic in Europe, yeah. and and so therefore these these uh, uh, Asian colonies of Great Britain, uh, the Netherlands, uh, we didn't really have colonies, but we had territories, the Philippines. Um, that uh, this was a, a fruit that was ripe and was about to fall. Very similar to the decision of Mussolini to enter the war on the 10th of June 1940, isn't it? Yeah. In, in so much that, you know, he's he only does it because he thinks France is out of the picture and Britain's about to be out of the picture. Opportunistic, yeah. And it strikes me that that's pretty much the, you know, the the Japanese suddenly find themselves in a rock and a hard place. They can't get stuff back from, they can't get the imports, the resources they need from the US anymore. Um, you know, it's not going well in China. You know, they've got themselves into a little bit of an impasse, which is costing them more than they're gaining. And... They've got to do something, and so they're hedging their bets so they can they can they can benefit from others' weakness 
caused by the war that's breaking out in Europe. Well, and they're, and they're believing the Germans' hype, after all, because the Germans know, realistically, that they can't win in the East, uh, beat the Soviets this winter. They know they can't do it. They know that they know that's beyond their grasp, but they're not. They're not going to tell anyone that, are they? And, uh, least of least of all the Japanese, because because it swing it's, for the Germans, the Japanese entering the war offers offers a you know a, a release of pressure, arguably, doesn't it? Because suddenly the British are having to tend to their empire rather than just their sort of European concerns. Right. Yeah. No. Exactly. And so the 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 plan for Pearl Harbor. I mean, it it, it it's audacious. It's daring, and it's like a lot of those. Those audacious, daring plans and the, that are hatched in the Second World War—it's—it's it's got to go completely right, hasn't it, for it to for it to work? So, 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 what is the plan, Ian? And how does it come about? I suppose the Japanese at, at that time had uh, this uh, this carrier striking force that was, in many ways, really the the most impressive in the world. Essentially, some of the leading uh, planners uh, associated with naval air power in Japan saw that there was this possibility of pushing these carriers out to the central you know, Pacific uh, within striking range of Hawaii and, uh, and launching a, a, a very large armada of planes from six flight decks uh, under cover of darkness to attack in the morning. And that most likely uh, they would be able to get to within a striking range of, of Hawaii, um, or at least they, they would have better than even uh, odds of uh, being able to, to approach undetected. Uh, through those isolated waters north of Hawaii. And so um, once this idea was put to the commander-in-chief of the Imperial Japanese fleet, Isoroku Yamamoto, he said, well, that's really our only chance is to knock the American fleet out on the first day of the war. They effectively did that. At least the battleships, they they knocked uh, the entire fleet of American battleships out really in the first 15 minutes. Of course, the battleships were not the main threat. It was the aircraft carriers and the submarines, uh, which were unscratched in the attack. Yeah, so that's that's the fatal flaw of it. But I mean, how many how many we're, we're talking about? Sort of you know, three hundred fifty three aircraft in the first wave. Yeah. And then there's a second wave, isn't there, of a uh, hundred seventy one or something like that? Uh, I mean, you know, it's, it's it's a big force. It's I mean, that's a big operation, isn't it, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean? Yeah, it is, and it and nothing like that had ever been done before, which is you know it goes a long way to explain why the American forces were were caught by surprise. And, you know, the idea that you could push a carrier task force that far um, into the into the Pacific. Uh, and and really the the this um, uh, process of, of launching planes from six flight decks, which then coalesce into a coherent formation, and that was something that had just never been done by any Navy. Yeah, and, and and I mean, just to put that into context, I mean, that requires kind of incredible discipline and skill and training to do, doesn't it? I mean, you can't just, just sort of click your fingers and expect that to happen. No, and it, it's, it was the long commitment to training. Um, it was the, the Japanese commitment to, uh, to, to develop these capabilities, but to do so in secrecy so that the West mm. was essentially unaware that they could do this. And, uh, you know, even a year into the war, I think uh, the American carrier forces uh, could not have pulled something like that off. I mean, right. just the just the just the um, uh, the complexity involved in taking, you know, squadrons from six different carriers and, and um, uh, allowing them to, to coalesce into one big formation and then to act under the command of a single commander. Uh, that that was a, a, a very, very impressive feat 
really virtually unprecedented. And how did how did the Japanese arrive at that? What's the evolution of their being able to develop this capability? If you if you say the, the Americans aren't just aren't able to come up with a thing like that, what's going on in the in the Imperial Navy to make that happen? Well, it it, it really is just this. Uh, extraordinary it's it's the ambition and ingenuity of the japanese give the japanese credit yeah. uh, for what they achieved uh and um it was a, a culture of extremely intense training uh for years prior to the outbreak of war uh and a training really in secret too to develop these capabilities while simultaneously hiding them from their potential enemies you know the the motto of the japanese navy was that there were no weekends. Uh, the days of the week were Sunday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, <laughs> Saturday. I, I think you have to acknowledge uh, the particular ingenuity and ambition of the Japanese, uh, as FDR did on his speech yeah. the day after the attack. Yeah. I mean, were they keeping abreast of what everyone else was doing as well? So during the, because that's the other striking thing is the Royal Navy. While they're capable of doing Taranto, the, the, for instance, the the aircraft are just nothing like what the Japanese are putting into the field, you know, a, 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 a only the following year. Um, are they keeping an eye on what other people are doing or are they very much eyes down on their own uh, way of doing it? Uh, no, they were trying to they were trying to learn everything they could about what we were up to, about what you, the British, were up to uh, in the other leading armies and navies around the world. They're uh, network of um, naval attaches and the various embassies uh, were gathering as much information as they could. They got everything they could and uh, could get in writing, sent it back to Tokyo to be translated. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, certainly they were they were trying to understand what we were capable of doing as well, uh, and we were quite a bit more open than they were. Uh, yeah, and and so I I, mean, I think that's an important part of the story. It's just what a tremendous shock uh, it was to us, to you, the British, yeah. at uh, at just how good the Japanese were, and just how good they were in the air, in particular. Well, their training, their, I mean, their training programs were absolutely brutal, weren't they? I mean, they were they were by far and away the most extensive training program for for any air force in the world at that time, in terms of you know preparation for it up to 1941. I mean, no one had the kind of hours in the logbook that a that a trainee pilot would have in the J Imperial Japanese Navy or the Imperial Japanese Army Air Force, for that matter. I mean, you know that that got eclipsed. That that got eclipsed as the war progressed. Obviously, you know the 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 training process got cut and cut and cut um, as the Allied training program got got more extensive. But but in 1941, you know their their pilots are just the best around, aren't they? Yeah, they were. I think that uh, they certainly were the best in in the Pacific. That was quite clear. And, you know, as well remembered as Pearl Harbor is for the absolutely essential historical event that it was, um, it's easy to forget just how quickly Allied air power collapsed in the Western Pacific, really just in the first three weeks of the war. Yeah. In the Philippines, uh, half of MacArthur's um, uh, bombers and fighters were gone on the first day of the war. Um, the RAF over Malaya was essentially just massacred. Uh, in a, really in a matter of two to three weeks. Uh, yeah. and, and no one saw that coming. Uh, and, and, and so it was, the, it was just the, the shock of just how good the Japanese pilots were, how quickly they were able to move, uh, that um, uh, you know, really sort of shaped the psychology of, the, of that first year of the, of the conflict in the Pacific. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, it is amazing when you think, but just to go back to Pearl Harbor itself, you think about the damage that is caused. I mean, everything that's there does get hit, basically, doesn't it? I mean, you've got, you know, California half sunk, West Virginia ablaze, um, Oklahoma capsized, Arizona's forward magazine exploding, that that terrible incident that kills nearly a thousand, um, you know, further three cruisers, three destroyers. You know, it, it's 188 aircraft destroyed, 159 right. damaged. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a really comprehensive mauling. But they get the actual attack on Pearl Harbor itself absolutely bang on. But the aircraft carrier aren't there, and and the aircraft carrier are the key to the whole thing, and and that's the fatal flaw of Pearl Harbor, isn't it? That those those U.S. Navy aircraft carriers are not in Pearl Harbor at the time, and 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 it's interesting as, as to why. What intelligence do, do the Japanese have, and, and what are they missing? I mean, I suppose they're missing is the uh, is the details about the aircraft carriers, right? Yeah, they they didn't know that the carriers would be would be at sea. Uh, the carriers have been sent to deploy a squadron of Wildcat fighters to Wake Island. Um, right. All of those, by the way, wiped out in the first week of the war as well. <laughs> but that was the reason the carriers were were gone, uh, and of course that. That was the weapon that was remaining that the Navy had remaining uh, and was able to deploy in this these series of carrier raids in the early months of the war, uh, which were not particularly important in themselves as to the actual damage they did to Japanese facilities on these isolated islands in the Central Pacific. But they were very significant in that they prompted then uh, the uh, Japanese to to commit to try to flush the American fleet out of uh, Pearl Harbor and destroy it in a pitch battle, which led to the Midway operation. And so I, I may be getting a little ahead of myself, but the significance of their missing the aircraft carriers, the fact that they did not touch any submarines at all or the submarine base. Ah, oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And so who is, who's in charge of Pearl Harbor at the time? Uh, well, the um, husband Kimmel was the uh, commander in chief of the, of the uh, Pacific Fleet at the time, Walter Short, the general was uh, the commanding general of army forces uh, in Hawaii. And what, and what sort of guy is Kimmel? I mean, what's his background? Kimmel was, uh, you know, one of the star officers of his generation. Um, he was uh, 1904, I think, maybe was his class year at Annapolis. But he had been identified, uh, you know, from an early age, as were most of the others who were promoted as quickly as he was, as, you know, someone who, who was a future leader uh, and had been... Um, you know, elevated to this, perhaps the most prestigious theater command in the Navy at the time, you know, by all reports was an extremely adept uh, leader uh, who I think was just caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he, he lost his job, didn't he? He was fired and... He and Short were relieved of command, which I think was inevitable yeah. that they would be relieved of command after that. Then they were sort of put through this gauntlet of uh, investigations, um, nine major investigations, congressional, military, largely redundant. Uh, you know, I think it's most historians today agree that they were unfairly scapegoated. So they now have command again. That, that's their, their, their careers are toast. They were done. Wow. He retired from the Navy the following year, didn't he, basically? He was still in uniform for some years after that, but really his job was just to sit down and um, go through these investigations, giving endless testimony. Take it, basically. Wow. Yeah, gosh. I dedicated the third book of my trilogy to Kimmel and Short. 
Oh, did you? I've, wow. Ah, I never, I just never noticed that. I said they were dealt a losing hand. Well, they, I mean, they, they absolutely were, weren't they? I mean, what, what could he have done differently? Did, did the Americans have an answer to this kind of attack that they'd not conceived the possibility of ever happening anyway? I mean, it's it, that's the crux of it, isn't it? You know, you could go through a charge sheet against both Kimmel and Short. Um, Kimmel, I think probably the the most damaging charge against him is that he did not keep the patrol planes in the air uh, as he should have pushed the pilots much harder. So these PBYs, these um, these flying boats that have very long range are about 1,500 mile uh, flying range, you know, doing these daily searches north of Hawaii. Right. And uh, we simply didn't have enough of those planes and in particular enough air crews. And so the, the air crews were reaching sort of a state of exhaustion in the fall of 1941. And Kimmel had... Um, uh, essentially authorized what they were asking, which was to, you know, can we scale back these flights a bit um, because of this this concern about pilot exhaustion, which was a real one throughout the war, and so and he he did he did that and had those those uh, flights been maintained at a, at a much more aggressive kind of clip, if the planes had been in the air longer, the pilots had been. Uh, doing longer and more frequent flights, you know, might they have uh, spotted the k- Japanese carriers on the way in? Hard to say, but um, but that's that's probably the single most um, damaging charge against Kimmel, one that he acknowledged that in retrospect was an error. We need to take a break right now. We'll be back after these propaganda messages from the world of capitalism. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Oh, and what about the the role of, of code breaking and, and radio listening and all that kind of stuff? The Japanese must have a picture of what, what the American situation is, otherwise it wouldn't be you know I'm um, so so where, where are the sh- you know what what are the strengths of of Japanese intelligence and its weaknesses and vice versa with the Americans? Yeah, through their consulate they you know they they were getting daily reports. Uh and the way Pearl Harbor is laid out, if you visit, um it is essentially a fishbowl uh, because surrounded on three sides, you have higher terrain uh, from which you can look down on Pearl Harbor. So there's there's this security issue that it's impossible to disguise uh, from really anyone uh, who's on the island of Oahu, uh, what ships we have in port. And so uh, that was the major source of intelligence. They you know, Japanese really were not using Japanese Americans in Hawaii. This was, of course, the fear. Um, and, uh, and there's really basically virtually no evidence at all that Japanese Americans were assisting uh, in providing intelligence to, to the Japanese. But they they had an idea that our battleships were in port uh, because they were generally in port. We, we really didn't operate our battleships much at sea prior to the war, partly because of the immense fuel consumption. Uh, and so they expected to find the battleships exactly where they were in the East Lock of Pearl Harbor, uh, essentially moored two by two, sitting ducks for a sudden surprise air attack. So a safe, a safe bet that they're in harbor. But, yes. the, but, but are the Japanese also considering, however, that, that you know, that, that the harbor's not very deep. You, you, can, you can put a hole in a battleship all you like um it's it's not going to the bottom of the ocean is it so so whatever you do is 
arguably to these capital ships is temporary anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I, I don't think the Japanese anticipated the extent to which we would be able to raise those ships and repair them. And that's one of the great, you know, largely untold stories, or at least in, in most histories of the Pacific War, the reclamation efforts at Pearl Harbor, which really were on the scale of building a major canal or, you know, so, some one of the great engineering feats of history, I think you could say in, in terms of the scale of it, it was it was consistent with that. You know, raising these um, these thirty thousand ton uh, BMS, patching them, getting them into dry dock, repairing them, getting back them back into service by the middle of the war, uh, stronger and, and more modernized in every respect than the battleships that have been sunk. That was something that I think, you know, in in general, I think the Japanese just um, underestimated mm. American capabilities in that kind of respect, kind of the mass industrial scale that could be mobilized with an economy the size of, of the American economy. I think they thought we knocked the battleships out of action. We at least are getting some running room to go take the territory that we want to take throughout the southwestern and South Pacific. So is, so is Yamamoto, he, he's happy with the result, is he? Even though he haven't got the aircraft carriers, he, he still thinks it's a good result. That was really what Yamamoto wanted. He was the champion of this uh, attack. They were concerned that about uh, counter airstrikes on the task force, and um, and they didn't want to lose their carriers. They you know they needed those carriers. They didn't want to lose ships, and so you know there was essentially no counterattack at all, and uh, and they lost I think thirty planes. They really didn't lose anything uh, in this attack, and they knocked the battleships out of action. So uh, yes, I think. Uh, they would have regarded that as a as a major tactical victory, as indeed it was. I mean, what, what what's the ultimate aim of of, of Pearl Harbor? It's it's not to kind of win outright a war against the U.S., isn't it? It's it's, it's to is to reach a compromise where the Americans sort of leave them alone in their own sphere of influence in the, in the Pacific, isn't it? Yeah, I, you know, and and one of the most fascinating aspects of this entire episode is that Isoroku Yamamoto, who was this kind of singular figure, uh, a, a commander in chief of the Japanese Navy, a former vice minister of the Navy, an eminent political figure in Japan. You have to constantly remember that in a militarist regime like this, the admirals and the generals are are not just military commanders, but really political leaders as well. Right. Yamamoto was a, um, a revered figure. Uh, in fact, I think I say in the first book, he was probably the second most revered figure in Japan after the emperor. Amazing. Um, and uh, so he's a, a public figure. And, um, and, and he was powerful and influential for that reason. The uh, Japanese Navy uh, the naval general staff in Tokyo, they were opposed to this idea of striking Pearl Harbor. Right. And Yamamoto insisted upon it and you know, walked right up to the edge of, of tendering his resignation if he was not permitted to go forward with it. Gosh. Um, he, was also the, he was also the figure, probably the most important figure within the, the Japanese regime that was counseling against attacking the United States. Yeah, yeah, he was reluctant, wasn't he? He was reluctant, and also hadn't he spent time? He'd spent time in the U.S., hadn't he? He had. He'd done. He he'd studied uh, English at Harvard, and then he had returned as naval attaché in the Washington Embassy. So he twice had lived in the United States, spoke English, had traveled widely around the country, um, and uh, and so so he was he was in this position of saying, "Do not attack the United States. We are risking everything by doing this." 
Um, but when it became clear that, that he was losing that debate and that, w- that the Japanese were going to declare war and attack, then he uh, said, well, if, you, if you're going to force me to fight this war, you must allow me to, to launch this surprise attack on Pearl Harbor to begin the war. Was it his estimation then that the American, the Americans, I mean, you know, George W. Bush coined that word misunderestimate, didn't he? Um, uh, I mean, is, is, is that what's going on here? That the Japanese political establishment, essentially, they misunderestimate what the US will do in response. Do they think this blow means that the Americans, and, and obviously, because it's not, it's not just Pearl Harbor, it's the Philippines as well, that this will, this will, the Americans haven't got the stomach for this. Yeah. They're not interested. They'd actually rather sell us the oil than not sell us the oil and fight. Because, I mean, to, I, I was going to ask earlier, is Roosevelt subject to pressure from American oil interests about cutting off trade with the Japanese? You know, Because he's, after all, he's damaged American oil interests, doesn't he? A business in, in doing that. So so is there, are the Japanese thinking, this is all we need do and they'll, they'll, they'll sue for peace, basically? Is that the... The understanding they've got going. Yeah, I mean, you know, essentially, there. This was a, a uh, one of the great political miscalculations of all time. Yeah, really, right. I mean, they're 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 betting that uh, Hitler is unbeatable in Europe, and they're betting that the United States does not want to fight a prolonged war on the opposite side of the world uh, to reclaim territories that we didn't particularly want anyway. There was this this notion that if we essentially knock the American fleet out on the first day of the war, uh, the Americans might just say, well, you know, I mean, we potentially could defeat the Japanese uh, on the opposite side of the world. But just the scale of this effort uh, is so great that really what we ought to do is is cut a deal with them. And, and that's particularly true, by the way, if if uh, if Moscow is about to fall, yeah. if Britain is going to be alone against Hitler in Europe, uh, then, you know, perhaps it's a good bet that Britain will fall or, or cut some sort of a deal as well. And then we'll, and then the Americans would have to worry about, you know, Hitler and his potential ambitions, even in South America. So in that mm-hmm. situation, you know, you, you certainly don't want to have to fight a, a prolonged war, which involves projecting overwhelming force across the largest ocean in the world. Yeah. You know, so that that was the calculation. It was. Uh, and it was obviously a, a, a terrible misreading of the kind of temper and character of the American people. If you read some of Yamamoto's letters during this debate, they're fascinating. He, you know, cited American history. He talked about the American Civil War. Uh, he said, Amazing. you know, do not judge the Americans based on your impression of Mickey Mouse and and their, <laughs> you know, their their kind of infatuation with baseball and horse racing. You know, these are, are shallow characteristics. And if you enrage them, uh, they will mobilize themselves to come after you. And after all, it's, you know, ten, the economy of the United States is about 10 times larger than that of Japan. And so in a prolonged war of attrition, uh, it was clear that Japan would not have, you know, any chance at all of uh, prevailing. Gosh. What crumbs of comfort are they take? Are they looking at isolationism? Is that, is that what they've been basing it on? Because after all, the Germans also have a similar appalling estimation of American um, industrial power, and you know, which comes right from the top. You know, Hitler's right. view of America is essentially a sort of hallucination um, in terms of what the Americans might do and 
what their industri- industrial capability is. Do you think that's where they're where they're gleaning this idea from? They've looked at the sort of popularity of isolationist politics in the in the thirties, and and also Roosevelt, after all, has played this sort of double game of of uh, you know getting elected on a, a, an isolationist ticket pretty much in nineteen forty. Is that is is that what is that what they've done? Is that where they've gone wrong? Yeah, I think it was clear that they were able to, you know, as an open society, the United States is largely a fishbowl for the outside world. And uh, the rest of the world could see that isolationism was, if anything, perhaps gaining influence uh, throughout 1941, even right up into October of 1941, where you had the threat of mass desertions from the army uh, if... um, if 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 uh, the uh, soldiers were not released from their previous commitments, and so um, yeah, I think that's clearly part of the calculation. Yes, but also I, I, the way I see it is, is that Japan just keeps reaching these forks in the road. You know, after after the Meiji Revolution, you know, so I was like, okay, right, we're now going to industrialize. Okay, but that that leads us down this 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 fork in the path. You know, we can do this route or this route. You know, we can. You know, you know, we get to the 1920s and the beginning of the 1930s, and it's like, yikes! You know, we haven't got enough natural resources. We haven't got enough, you know. So let's go into Manchuria. Well, Manchuria inextricably links, leads them to, you know, invading main part of China in 1937. You know, when once you go down that route, you're then down a different course, and that then puts you on a collision course with the United States and other imperial powers in the in the in the region. And so yet again, you know, you're, you're suddenly faced with these these. You know, the, the further they get into it. The, the more difficult their situation becomes and the, and the more the, the greater the conundrum until suddenly you're faced with with Pearl Harbor you know you're, you're faced up with a, against a, an intransient United States which is not going to play ball which is cutting off is severing their links to oil and other supply lines so so what do you do well you've got this one remote chance of 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 coming out on top in this scenario and that's destroying the entire United States Navy uh, Pearl Harbor but it but but that's predicated on not only knocking out the uh, the the battleships but also the aircraft carriers so at every, at every so in every every time they reach this fork something doesn't go quite according to plan and you know they don't they don't conquer the whole of china you know china doesn't completely roll over you know uh, america doesn't play ball they get to pearl harbor they 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 hit it it's a very successful but they don't hit the submarines and they don't hit the aircraft carriers so you know it's it's as I say, it's these, these these sequence of forks in the road that they keep coming to, and they they keep quite not taking the right fork. Well, they're gam- gambling on an accumulator, aren't they? Is the, is the way they're doing it. They're gambling on an accumulator. Yeah, exactly. That's about a better way of putting it. <laughs> and these and these decisions are being made in in the context of a, a very very unstable domestic political situation in Japan. Right. I mean, uh, Japanese society was was just a cauldron uh, in these years. I mean, they were constantly on the verge or felt themselves on the verge uh, even of civil war. Uh, it was an era in which um, you had, uh, you know, assassinations occurring routinely, and then the assassins were often lauded by major portions of the Japanese uh, population. Right. You know, the inflammatory press, the... Um, uh, factionalism within the army, the conflict between the army and the navy, mm. um, and and so so the whole thing feels quite fragile. Absolutely, yes, yeah, and and many of these these decisions are produced in in the context of you know we have to do we have to to push uh, we have to press uh, our claims in China because if we were to withdraw uh, there would be a military coup d'état. And uh, perhaps even the emperor would be imprisoned or killed. 
Yeah. And so and so they're they're constantly and this actually occurred during the war as well. Uh, Japanese decision makers again and again, you see them sort of preoccupied with maintaining stability and avoiding a collapse uh, of the political legitimacy of the regime. It, it really, that was the case right up to the very end of the war, literally to the last days before the Japanese surrender, even after we had dropped atomic bombs. Uh, the uh, question of whether or not they could surrender was very much tied up in the question of how will elements within the army react if we try to move toward a truce or a surrender? Uh, will they simply seize control, reject the truce, and and then uh, it, all of these diplomatic efforts are, are all for naught anyway, right? So, so everything Japan does through this entire period of history, really going back to the early 1930s, um, uh, you know, leaders are, are making decisions within a context where they fear for their lives. They fear for essentially a kind of a collapse of this fragile political order, a descent into civil war uh, between different elements in the, of the military, uh, and perhaps even, um, uh, you know, a, a, a conflict in which the emperor's life might be threatened. And so that those kinds of concerns are always uppermost in the, in the minds of Japanese leaders during this entire period. God, that's so interesting. Yeah, it really is. It really is. But just go back to the to the U.S. perspective, um, and the shakeup this has. So, so you know, Kimmel's out in 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 short order. Right. So short. You know, Nimitz comes in. I mean, where, where I mean, you you rank Nimitz pretty highly, don't you? I mean, Nimitz was a fairly junior admiral. Uh, he had been the the essentially the Navy's personnel director. Uh, he was the, the head of what was called the Bureau of Navigation. That essentially was kind of the, the part of the Navy's, the Navy Department uh, that made decisions about where to move officers, uh, who would get command of a particular ship. Um, and uh, he'd been doing that for two years. In, in uh, FDR as a former assistant secretary of the Navy during the Woodrow Wilson administration, uh, liked to take a direct hand in making a lot of these personnel decisions. And so through that process, he got to know Nimitz and got to like Nimitz and trust him. And uh, it was FDR's decision personally uh, to uh, send Nimitz to the Pacific uh, after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Because he wanted someone that he trusted and who he, he knew the cut of his jib and all that kind of stuff. Right. He wanted someone that he knew. Uh, FDR liked to, to feel like he, he personally knew, particularly in the Navy. This was not the case in the Army to the same extent. Uh, but he did, um, he did often um, exert his influence or his absolute command, I, I guess you used to say, to, uh, to pick uh, admirals for the top jobs in the Navy uh, that were uh, people that he knew personally and liked. But he did a pretty good job, didn't he? I mean... Oh, Nimitz, yeah, I think he did. I mean, he was a, he was, he was a, a gifted leader for the job that he had to do, which was to, to uh, make these different services work together, essentially. Uh, and, you know, one of the major themes of my, my trilogy is the, the disunity within the American military, the service rivalries between the Army and Navy, between the Marines and the Navy, uh, the different air services. Uh, they all had their, their own, you know, agendas, really. After the attack on Pearl Harbor, there was an outcry in Congress and throughout much of the American people. You know, the question was, how could this disaster have happened? And uh, one of the culprits, several of the leaders in Congress uh, were, were determined to essentially reorganize the American military and to unify it 
so the the army and the navy had had been almost entirely separate. They'd done very little planning uh, together. Uh, there was no Secretary of Defense. All of that was was part of the post-war reforms. American military leaders uh, after Pearl Harbor, they knew that these major reforms were coming, and so part of the objective that that they had while fighting the war was to sort of position their uh, various services for this tremendous bureaucratic and political struggle that they saw coming after the war. So, you know, Nimitz, um, I think, was better than most at essentially forcing the Army, the Navy, the uh, Army Air Forces, the Marines, the submarine fleet, all to work together as, as part of one kind of concerted grand strategy to defeat the Japanese. What did the Americans know about what was happening in, in Japan? What's their estimation of the Japanese uh, will and ability to fight the war? Because you've, de- you've detailed it, but this is, this is with, with the, a historian's view. Just as, just as the Japanese are looking at America and drawing their own conclusions, what, what conclusions are the, the Americans drawing about, the, about the Japanese and their ability to fight and their will, their, their political unity and so on? Well, the, um, the old Japan hands, as they were called in, um, in the United States and in, and in Britain, what they saw was essentially you had one class of Japanese who had seized control of the government. And, um, and all, all, of the, the, all of the Japanese who we would have liked to deal with, right? So the elites uh, within the foreign ministry, for example, um, had been marginalized essentially by this the very kind of aggressive imperialist militarist regime. Now, the inner workings of that regime, the debates that were occurring within the sort of small circle of, of Japanese who, who were um, making the major decisions throughout this period, that was something that was largely opaque. Yeah. I don't think that we understood well at all uh, what was really happening in the inner circle of power. And I think that was true really throughout the entire war. Yeah. You know, so so one of the major debates was, you know, what is the role of the emperor exactly? How much influence does he really have? Uh, can the can we somehow make contact with the emperor? And this is something that, you know, our leadership was was trying to figure out in the last year of the war. Can we somehow make contact with the emperor? We can't cut a deal with him because we're committed to this doctrine of unconditional surrender. But can we somehow um, convey to him that he can keep his throne and that uh, Japan can sort of proceed along the lines of a constitutional monarchy uh, if, uh, if he supports the surrender. Can we, can we get that message across to him? And would that make any difference? Or, or you know, does, is he really a powerless figurehead hmm. or not? And, and when, you, when you look at that debate and you go back and you look at the original letters and documents and so forth, uh, the impression you get is that we really just didn't know. Yeah. We, we were really just reduced to speculation. Which is which is not unlike really um, dealing with Nazi Germany as well as there's a there's a proper misunderstanding or not even a, a, a proper grip on what's motivating the the, the the Nazi high command. I mean that's why you end up having having to go to unconditional surrenders because because there is no negotiation that can be had. Um, there are no reasonable terms to meet halfway, are there? Uh, uh, in a sort of traditional diplomatic sense, right? Um, Gosh, this is this is also fascinating. We never talk about the Pacific, do we, Jim? This is um, this is very good. This is very good for us. <laughs> yeah, we don't we don't spend enough time on it. That's for sure. Um, it, we we do that usual thing of the sort of Western skew, but um, 
But Ian, this has been this has been fascinating. Yeah, I mean, we you know we talk about World War World War Two and in you know these different theaters. Really, these were different wars. Yeah, I mean, these were these were different wars. We were allies, of course, against Hitler and against the Japanese. But um, these were these were different wars happening in different parts of the world at the same time. You know, to be a, an expert, you could you could write twenty books on the Pacific and and know next to nothing about Europe and vice versa. And in fact, that is the case, I, th- I think, with many writers. Yeah, although the although the influence of both theaters and both both wars, as you put it. Uh, on the other are, are are there all the time and constant, you know, whether it's a kind of sort of channeling of resources to one theatre or the other, or whether it's a kind of, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm, I don't know, Alice of the same mind, you know, I'm very, I'm very taken with the idea that in 1945, in the European war, you know, everything is about the prospective invasion of Japan, you know, and that's dictating right. a lot of the decision making in the last months of the war in Europe, you know, so, so they are all kind of linked, but I take your point, I, I, I they are, they are separate in, in so many ways. Um, but 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 just fascinating. And and in some ways, the 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 part of the war that really linked the two theaters was the war between uh, Hitler and Stalin. Yes. Uh, because if you know if if uh, if the Soviet Union had collapsed, or if Stalin had cut some sort of a deal the way the Bolsheviks had twenty five years earlier, uh, that would have had immense consequences uh, in the Pacific. Yeah. Immense consequences because the Japanese. You know, they, they did have to, to maintain a, quite a considerable force in Manchuria, and they did, right, at least up through the end of 1944, uh, because of their fear that the, that the Red Army would strike. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Well, Ian, thank you so much. That's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you, Ian. Absolutely fascinating, yeah. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, gentlemen. I really, really, just, uh, just I mentioned that at the beginning, but, but your trilogy on the Pacific War is is an absolute masterpiece. And um, if anyone wants to know more, those are the three books you should be going to get. I appreciate it, James. Well, thank you so much, Ian. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you again soon. Cheerio.